storytelling. It's a newly discovered or perhaps rediscovered tool for business. But all stories aren't the same, nor are they equally effective. So which stories should you be able to tell? And how do you find them and share them? Our guest is one of the world's leading experts on business storytelling. It's best-selling author, speaker, and coach, Paul Smith, on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. My programs include guidance for message leadership with groups of professionals, as well as messaging transformation across an organization. Now, on this podcast, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is now available from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books. The audio version is on Audible, Apple, basically wherever fine business books are sold. You can also find a sample of the introduction and chapter one on my website, jimcard.com. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. If you've heard a lot more recently about storytelling in business, well, our guest today is one of the reasons why. Paul Smith is one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling and the author of three best-selling books already, Lead with a Story, Sell with a Story, and Parenting with a Story. Paul now has a new book, The Ten Stories Great Leaders Tell. He was named one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers last year. Paul holds an MBA from the Wharton School, and he got into this whole storytelling thing following a 20-year career at Procter & Gamble, which we will hear more about. Paul, welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on. And let's start with that, if we may, Paul, because a lot of people who get into your type of space, they become a recognized expert and they speak and coach and consult and write books and will oftentimes talk about, oh, I just had to get out of the corporate world. I would never want that part. You had a long, successful career at Procter & Gamble, and it doesn't sound like you were running away screaming, just that you learned a lot and developed a lot of relationships and wanted to do something a little bit different. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly wasn't uh, running away from anything. p and is a wonderful company, and I appreciate all of my 20 years there. I think that the conclusion I came to is that I think I was where most people, I think, are in their career, and that is that they probably love you know, 10% of their job. It's why they chose that career, that profession to begin with. And they probably hate 10% of their job, you know, filling out your expense report or 
office politics or something. But the 80% of the work in the middle is work that they like. It's good work. They probably wouldn't do it if you didn't pay them, but you know, it's good, solid work. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's where most people are. And that's certainly where I was. And where I wanted to be was, gosh, I'd love a job where I loved all of it. You know, not just that 10% and then the other, you know, other 80% was just mediocre. I wanted to love all of it. And I discovered that after 20 years that I really loved the five, six, seven, eight, 10 days a year at P&G that I got to either, you know, speak at the company annual meeting or teach a new hire training class or teach a, a course for new general managers or something. So I loved speaking and training. I wanted to be a teacher basically, but the only way to do that full time, like there was not a single job like that out of the 120 some odd thousand people that were at P&G at the time. And the only people I could tell that got to do that for a living were people who'd written some best-selling book. And then they traveled around and did that for all kinds of companies. And so that's what I wanted to do. But there I was in my mid forties and 20 years in and too young to retire and all that. But it was a strong enough desire that I went out and tried to write that book that would create that career path change for me, but not being too interested in taking unwarranted risk. I, I wrote that book while I still worked at P&G. So I did it nights and weekends and took me, you know, two and a half years, but it eventually, you know, got it done and it got published and it did well. I think it's in its 11th printing now and it's in seven or eight languages around the world. So it, it pretty quickly led to the career path that I wanted so I took a rather safe way to change careers, but I'm glad that I did and didn't wait another 10 years to retire. What was it at P&G, for those who might not know your story, that was the bridge into writing that book of landing on this whole notion about storytelling and growth that from what you were doing at P&G, because this is not, it was not random at all, was it? No, not at all. So, well, first of all, I did just notice after 15 or so years that the leaders that I admired most at the company, the, the ones that I wanted to work for and wanted to grow up and kind of be like when I grew up in the company, had this skill set of being great storytellers. And that frustrated me because they didn't teach me that in business school. They didn't teach me that when I joined P&G. And so I wanted to learn that on my own. So I kind of went out to learn that. But the other impetus was I read a book in 2009, I guess it was, called Made to Stick, Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die by uh, Chip and Dan Heath. And New York Times bestseller, fabulous book. And basically they outline six characteristics that ideas have that make them really stand the test of time. And one of those six criteria was storytelling. I started using the ideas in their book in a training course I was teaching at P&G and eventually contacted them and said, hey, I, th I think there's some commercial value in the, the ideas in your book and the way that I'm teaching it and the case studies I'm using at P&G. And anyway, I ended up becoming their first licensed trainer of that course nationally. And I would just take a, a vacation day from P&G and go teach that course and come back. And, and that was kind of my first taste of what it would be like to do that for a living. And so when I was ready to, you know, think of, well, what is my idea? That storytelling, one of those six, you know, that was the time I decided, well, I, I want to go deep into that one idea. And that's what led me down this path. So you get a lot of, I think, credit, some people that may be confused or think, I keep hearing the storytelling stuff. Maybe you get some of the blame, Paul, for um, the fact that <laughs> yeah. this notion of storytelling as a powerful leadership tool, as it the way it connects to our ancient brains and 
by the way, I'm all in. I would certainly use it a lot in the work that, that I do as well. So it's very, very sound. Let's talk a bit about your latest book, The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. I'm interested in why 10. We can talk about what the 10 are, and I think a little bit in detail. Outside of it being a nice round number, did you find there's kind of a nice, is there a manageable set of the stories? And how did you land on these in particular? Yeah. So a couple of questions in there. Let me unpack both of them. So first of all, well, why 10? And the reason is two things, mainly because it's a much smaller number than the number of stories that I've been trafficking in before that. So I think in my first book, Lead with a Story, I talked about 21 different types of leadership stories that I think leaders need to tell. In my next book, it was Parenting with a Story. I think there are 23 types of parenting stories. In the third book, Sell with a Story, there are 25 different types of sales stories. And so I, I think if you do that math, that's somewhere around 70 different stories. And that's just a lot. Now, I do believe that you know any good leader needs a lot of different stories in their business life and their personal life. That's a lot. So, I mean, if I could be accused of anything, it would be being too thorough and not being very choiceful. So I think it was a fair exercise for me to, to sit down and think, okay, surely not all of these 70 stories are equally important, right? What are the most important ones? And so could I have picked five or 10 or 15 or 20? Yeah. So there's no magic to the 10, except that it's a much smaller number than 70. So I wanted to try and focus. So that's why 10. As far as how did I pick these 10? So there are really four criteria that I used. First of all, I've been doing this now for six or seven years. So when I wrote my first book, I was new to this area, but now I'm six or seven years in and I've had literally hundreds of different client companies and thousands of executives that I've coached. So I looked back on, well, what are the types of stories that my executive clients most frequently ask me for help developing? right? So that would be a clue that these are the more important ones. So which ones do my clients ask for? Secondly, I wanted to pick stories that I knew would be useful to leaders in all functional disciplines. So these aren't just stories for marketers or salespeople or engineers or the general manager or the finance manager or the HR leader or the IT leader. These are stories that I think no matter what function you lead, if you're a leader, you need to be able to tell these stories about your company. All right. So that's the second criteria. The, the third criteria was I wanted to pick areas that I think were just plainly obvious that these are areas that every leader needs to be able to influence in the organization. And once I go through the list, I think you'll agree with that. And so that was quite frankly, just based on my own, you know, 20 some odd years in the business world, my own experience that I know these are important areas that leaders need to influence. And then the last criteria was I wanted to pick stories that I knew wouldn't need to be changed very often. You know, there are some stories that you'll tell, you'll only tell them once maybe, or a handful of times because the need for that story has come and gone. But if you think about some stories and we'll get into the list here really quickly, but like your company founding story, well, that's just never going to change, right? And so your company was only founded once and that shouldn't change your vision story. Yeah, that's going to change, but not every six months right? Your vision should last three, four, five years, maybe longer, right? So I wanted to pick stories that I knew would last for years and maybe decades so that you could invest some time to get them right because these are the stories you're going to need to tell over and over and over again. So those were my four criteria and that was good enough to get me down to 10. And it does seem like it's a manageable number. I would presume that with 
the leaders that you'd go back to with your list and test that out, you probably didn't get any pushback. They probably all would look at that list and say, yeah, that's pretty, even though it's trimmed down, it's still pretty comprehensive. Exactly. So yeah, that was kind of my logic as well. I think when your listeners hear this list of 10, I think their reaction is going to be, yeah, I need all 10 of those. Well, then without further ado, Paul, let's get to the 10 and then I'll be interested in your experience about where most organizations and most leaders starting point would be from this menu. But let's go over the 10. Yeah. Okay. So the first four kind of go together because they're about setting the direction of the organization. So those first four are where we came from. That's our founding story. Why we can't stay there. That's a a case for change story. Where we're going, which is a vision story and how we're going to get there, which is a strategy story. All right. So I think if any leader can tell those four stories, they're much more likely to get their organization to go where they want them to go you know, because they're able to clearly articulate where we came from, why we can't stay there, where we're going and how we're going to get there. Right. So those four kind of go together. The next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. So those are what we believe. So that's a corporate values story, who we serve. So that's a customer story, a story about your customer so that everybody can understand who the customer is. Next one is what we do for our customers. So I call that a classical sales story. It's often a success story or a customer success story about something you did for your customers that they loved. And then the eighth one is how we're different from our competitors. So that's a marketing story. And I call it that because I think that's the job of marketing in general to differentiate yourself from your competitors. So anybody who can tell those four stories can basically say who we are, who we serve, what we do for those people, and how we're different from our competitors. And I think every leader needs to be able to tell that, right? Not just the marketing person telling the marketing story or the salesperson telling the sales story. I think every leader at a company needs to be able to articulate what their organization does that's so awesome that people would want to pay you money to do it for them, right? So those are the next four. The last two kind of go together as well, but they're more personal to the leader. So number nine is why I lead the way I do. So that's a a personal leadership philosophy story. And number 10 is why you should want to work here. So that's, I call that a recruiting story. And that's uh, obviously recruiting is not just the job of the HR department, right? Every leader's job is to bring in talented people and to have them stay and follow your leadership, hence the leadership story. So that's how I kind of round out the top 10. And I would imagine and Paul, your experience may be different. So, but coming at this naively from the outside and the kinds of experiences you've had with with your clients and your audiences, but given these 10, which makes a whole lot of sense all the way from our founding to why you would want to be part of all of this and everything in between, that there's going to be a mixed bag. So I think almost of the pantry, right? <laughs> you've got all the ingredients. Um, if we wanted to create these 10 entrees, in the menu of stories for leaders these days, that some of them might be readily available. Some of them might exist. So maybe the sales story is stuck in sales Mm -hmm. or the marketing story stuck in marketing or that sort of thing. So they're in certain tribes or units of the business. And then others might be some that no one's really thought about or put into in a conversational story-friendly way. What is it that you typically find in terms of the status quo, if you go in and say, what do we have to work with here in putting these stories together? 
Yeah, so that's a fair observation. So stories like a company's founding story, what we do for our customers, so a customer success story, those are the kinds that are often very readily available and that people are already telling today. Now, they're not always doing a good job of it. In fact, that's what I spend most of my professional time is with my clients is not only just helping them find, you know, identify the stories they need and then go find them, but to craft them in a better ways. But those are two that most companies have. That number seven, the customer, uh, you know, what we do for our customers, they often have lots of them. Like I said, they're not always well-crafted, but they have them. Founding stories are similar. They often have them, but they're not well-crafted. But some of these other stories, they often don't have at all. So for example, the vision story. Most companies have a vision, but most of them don't have a vision story. They have what's more likely a vision statement or what's really more of a mission or a goal. Like we want to be the fastest growing restaurant chain on the East Coast, or we want to build the quietest jet engine in the industry. So I would consider that a mission or a goal, but it's not a vision. And it's certainly not a vision story. So, you know, a story is a narrative about something that happened to someone. So if you're going to tell a vision story, you're basically telling a fictional story about the future. You know, this is, this is a, it's a future story and it's fictional because the future hasn't happened yet. Now you hope that this fictional story comes true, but so far it's a fictional story, but it's a story about what the future will be like if you accomplish that goal of being the fastest growing restaurant chain on the East coast, or you do invent the quietest jet engine, well, what's it going to be like to work there in that environment? And that's what a vision story is. And most of my clients don't have anything like that until they sit down and work with me. You know, one of the others that people don't have very often is um, a strategy story. They have a strategy, but they don't have a strategy story. Their strategy is a list of here are the things that we're going to do over the next year, which is great. You need that. But a strategy story is something different. A strategy story is, again, it's often a future story, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a present tense story, but it's a, a narrative about how those strategies are going to play out in the lives of the people who work there and how they're going to execute them and the result that's going to happen in the marketplace if they do those things that way. And it's a narrative. It's not just a list of what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Interesting. And so do you find be the case that, as you say, sometimes they exist or in bits and pieces or they're not crafted in story format? So We've got a sales story, for example, and look at all our collateral and look at all of our stuff here about how well our product or solution performs and our growth pattern and things like that. How do you take a look at that and go, good stuff, not a story. <laughs> and here's how we're here's how we're going to make it better. Right. Well, those are typically actually the first words that come out of my mouth. <laughs> Great stuff, <laughs> not a story. So let's just take an example from uh, sales, like you mentioned there. So, or in this case, let me use the marketing story. I think it'll be a little bit easier to illustrate. Most companies have a list of their key differentiating features, right? It's basically it's a list of our features and benefits and why we're better. Our product or service is better than our competitors. But what they don't have is a story about that. So the example I give in the book in that chapter on how we're different from our competitors is from a guy named Sherad Madison. So he's the, the CEO of United Building Maintenance. So that's a, a commercial cleaning company. So when he's talking to a new prospect, 
he almost always tells them what he does when he gets a new client. He said, uh, you know, there's usually a 30 day transition period before my company takes over. And he says, I always do the same thing during that 30 days. I will sneak into the building in the middle of the night for the company that is going to be my client in, in 30 days, because I want to watch how they're cleaning the offices now. And it's not as nefarious as I probably just made it sound. I mean, he does that for a reason. And the reason is that the employees cleaning the building are typically contract employees, and he's going to inherit them as part of the contract at the end of the month. So he wants to go see how they're performing and if they're well-trained and well-equipped to do their job before he starts. So he said, for example, I, we took over the Verizon building last month. And so, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I go in there and I, I look around and I see this guy uh, vacuuming the carpets. And he's using the same kind of residential quality vacuum cleaner that I use at home. Now, those corridors are 12 feet wide and they're a half a mile around. It's going to take that guy a month just to vacuum the carpets one time. And it's not going to do a very good job. And that vacuum cleaner is going to break down every couple of weeks because it's just not made for that kind of usage, right? So when we took over, we put him into you know a triple wide industrial grade vacuumer that'll do the job in a fraction of the time, do it much better. And that thing will last forever. So then I went to another floor and I saw this guy shampooing the carpets. Well, it's kind of the same thing. He's using the same kind of walk behind squeeze bottle shampooer that I use at home. And the same result, it's not going to do a good job. It's going to break down. So when we took over, we put him into one of those commercial grade riding shampooers that, you know, will do a, a job much, much faster. Plus it gets the guy off his feet, right? So that means I have fewer workman's comp issues, which means my client has fewer workman's comp issues. And he said, but the last thing I wanted to do, I wanted to check on how they were dusting the, the offices. So I went in and I looked on top of the cabinets and I saw the same thing on top of all of them. It was a half of a moon swiped out on top in the dust. And he says, I know exactly what that means. And you probably do too. He says, those cabinets are five and a half feet tall. That's standard height. Some of the people doing the dusting are not that tall. And so it's not that they're lazy. They just literally can't reach all the way to the back of that cabinet. And he said, that's what leaves that half of a moon swiped out on top. And he said, the truth is they'd be better off not dusting it at all because it's the contrast between the clean part and the dusty part that makes it obvious that it's not being cleaned properly. He said, so, you know, when I took over, we just, you know, gave them all these little 18 inch extension wands for their dust cloth. So, you know, they could easily reach the back. Boom, problem solved. So in that little short story, he's illustrated his key differentiating characteristics. Now he could go into those meetings, his sales call with the following. He could say, well, you know, the three reasons why we're better than our competitors are we use triple wide industrial grade uh, vacuumers. We use commercial grade riding shampooers. And I give all my dusters 18 inch extension wands to use with their dust cloths. And that's why we're better. And of course, you know, Jim, that would be true. That is why his company is better. But also hopefully you can see how much more effective the story is because now that you've heard the story, you can see in your mind's eye that guy riding around in that shampooer like the Zamboni driver at the ice skating, <laughs> right? right? You can see somebody easily reaching the back of that cabinet with their dust wand, right? So the story is a much more compelling way to illustrate the exact same three parts of the sales pitch or the marketing campaign, right? A story versus just the sales pitch. So that's an example of you know a sales or marketing story versus a sales or marketing pitch. Interesting. And as you were telling that, I'm imagining there are a couple of ways that that becomes as a story particularly effective because first, you're telling those people that the your prospect or your customer something that they did not know about their own business. 
like I'm going to give you a little insight on what happens at two in the morning when none of you are here and why it appears that way. And the other is that, as you say, it's not just listing out, hey, we have these certain features, we equip people in this certain way. It's you're seeing the fit of their business and how they do work and how they want the place to look and feel and smell when they get to work. So it's not just that we have our stuff. It's here's how it will work here based on the discovery work that they've done. That's brilliant. If I may ask, and I'm not sure if this is something that you run into very often, Paul, and we'll talk a little bit about equipping people with stories and making that a competency as well. But with the attention that storytelling now has, and I do not believe it's a fad. There are some people I would imagine a few years ago might have said, oh, this is another you know flavor of the year. Yeah, it's a 25-year fad now. So. Yeah, 25-year <laughs> fad. Well, and we can trace it much farther back than that based right. on how our brains are constructed. And you know that's not changing anytime soon. So not a fad, but I would imagine that there are at least some leaders who pick up a copy of your book or they hear something, read an article and say, okay, from this point forward, we're all storytellers in every situation. Maybe not to that extreme degree. But are there times, you've mentioned some areas where storytelling is going to be particularly effective and very resonant and will drive behavior and memory. Are there instances where leaders especially can try to shoehorn storytelling or maybe the wrong story for certain situations? Yeah, definitely. In fact, I was reminded of that recently on one of my um, blog posts. Somebody wrote something like, there's nothing worse than listening to a story told by an executive who just went to a class on how to tell a story. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I felt awful at that moment because that's what I do for a living. And I certainly hope that the folks I teach don't go out and do that. And the reason I think they don't is because one of the things that I teach them is that you shouldn't always be telling a story. Okay. In fact, I give them a number and here's the number, 10 to 15%, 10 to 15% of the time, the words coming out of your mouth as a leader should be in the form of a story, which means 85 to 90% of the time, you should not be telling a story. You should just be talking to people or writing memos or emails just like you normally do. Now, I think you can put stories in those emails and memos as well, but only 10 to 15% of the time. So imagine you've got a one hour presentation to the board of directors. Okay. That's 60 minutes, six to nine minutes out of that 60 minute meeting, you should probably be telling a story. And since your story should be you know, two or three, four minutes long, you should probably tell two or three stories during that one hour meeting. But the rest of the time, you're just talking to people like you normally do. So yes, there are times for stories, but it's the minority of time. If all you did is tell stories all day long, I think it would reduce the value of the stories that you tell, right? So don't think of it as you should. So that leader that picks up my book and reads and goes, all right, we're going to tell stories all the time now. Well, please don't. Please tell stories some of the time now instead of none of the time, which is what you were doing probably. And the times to tell the story are going to be when you really need to lead and influence someone. All right. So, and that's in that first book, I laid out here the 21 different, you know, situations you find yourself in as a leader where you need to influence somebody or, or different sales purposes. And here I am trying to narrow it down to 10 again, but it's not a million. It's a finite number of situations. And when you recognize them, tell a story and then move on. So don't walk around all day long telling stories. It really ought to just be that 10 to 15% of the time. And let's go a bit, Paul, as well into 
And so we've laid out the stories. We've talked a little bit about the characteristics of a story and strategically where a leader can use them. I would imagine, especially for some types of stories, that you want something that is not only remembered and is powerful coming from the leader, but the people inside the company now want to share it themselves, maybe in their own words or from their own recollection. So I have a fairly simple view about this, that people, in order to be messengers, to share a story well, they need to have knowledge. They need to know what the story is. They need to have some skill and they need to have confidence in doing that, that the story is true and that that'll be interesting to other people and valuable. So let's think through um, maybe as one example, the last story that you or story type that you have in the book is the recruiting story, why you should want to work here. That would strike me as one that we want everybody to be confident and fluent in that story, to share it within their own connections, their own network. What are the things that a leader would do? And it could be with the help of someone like you, or just as they're doing inside their own organizations to make it shareable and shared in those settings where we want more people to become storytellers. Yeah. So good question. I'm not sure I would have picked number 10 as the one that everybody would need to tell the same story. For example, number one, the founding story, that would be a great example where everybody needs to tell that story roughly the same way. Because if you're not, then somebody's not getting it right because there is a truth to how the company was founded and anything else is not going to be the truth. Whereas there are all kinds of reasons why you should want to work here. And when I tell the story of why you should want to work here, when I worked at Procter & Gamble and I would tell people a story of why they should want to work here, it was a story about me and my personal experience. And if you worked there and you were going to tell somebody a story about why they should want to work there, you probably wouldn't tell them Paul Smith's story. You'd probably tell them your story, right? So I think some of these stories are going to be very personal and you're going to be the only one that tells them, but some will be more corporate stories. So my personal story about why I joined P&G was about when I was in grad school and graduating and I was interviewing with all these different companies. And it was a really good year. I think I graduated in 1993 and it was the economy was doing great and I was at a good school. So I think I ended up with like eight or nine job offers and Procter & Gamble was one of them. But the other companies were Unilever and Johnson & Johnson and some of the big oil companies. I mean, they're all reputable big companies. And so I was having a hard time deciding which offer to take. And so what I did to decide is I called an executive search firm and the first person I would, I got to talk to me there, I said, Hey, look, I don't need your services now, but I still want to talk to somebody. And the advice that I need is, and I said, here's my situation. You know, I'm 25 years old. I'm just about to graduate from the Wharton school with an MBA. And I got, here are all the job offers I got and the salaries I got offered. If I were to call you five years from now and tell you that I wanted to leave and find another job, which of these you know, seven, eight, nine companies, would you find it easiest to place me out of? And the guy immediately said, oh, Procter & Gamble. And I said, well, how can you be so sure? These are all, you know, really blue chip companies. And he said, two reasons. First, P&G is the only company on that list that is still a promote from within company, which means they hire new hires like you, and then they grow them in the company. And whenever you leave, they're not going to hire somebody to replace you. They're going to promote somebody that's a couple of years behind you. And so if you ever want to work at P&G, you have to do it now. I can't get you a job there later. Any of those other companies, I can get you a job there later. And he said, the second reason is because I place people out of all those companies into all kinds of other companies all the time. 
And what I consistently hear, and by the way, I call them all a year later because if they're unhappy, I want to place them again because I get paid again, right? And he said, uh, I consistently hear from the people that I place out of Procter & Gamble into other companies when I call them a year later and ask them how it's going, their response is, you know, it, it, it's pretty good. The people aren't quite the high caliber people I was used to working with at P&G, but the job's pretty good. And that told me something. So for that reason, because of that phone call, that's why I joined P&G. Now I can tell that story and you could tell that story about me, but it wouldn't, might not be as effective because you probably have some other reason why you joined the company or even better, why did you stay? So like the advice I give in the book in that chapter, if you want to come up with a bunch of good recruiting stories that you or anybody else, you know, can tell, have people ask themselves, why did I join this company to begin with? And more importantly, why am I staying? And even better one is who here has thought about leaving the company, but decided not to tell us about the thought process you went through to think about leaving and then deciding not to. And all of those, why you came here, why you stay, why you thought about leaving, but changed your mind are three great questions to ask to elicit good recruiting stories from people. And then, so you can ask that question of a lot of your people and not everybody's going to have a good answer to that question, but some people will. And then, so you ask 30 people, you might come up with five or six or seven really great recruiting stories that they can tell and that you could tell, but one of them might be resonate with you more, especially if one of them is yours, you're going to tell that one more. Make sense? It does. And I think that's a good follow-up question to have as well. So you have the book that we're talking about, Message Manager Listeners, is The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Paul, I know you put together a workbook and some resources for people and also just some guidelines as you were talking about there of how to get started, how to identify, how to mine for those stories and identify which ones have the most promise, whether you're an existing leader or soon to be a leader, want to prepare yourself to be a leader so how do you recommend that people get started on this journey for themselves? Yeah. So the book is designed to be a quick, easy starting place. So first of all, you'll notice when you get it in your hands that it's a pretty small book. In fact, you can probably read the whole thing in a single hour, okay, as opposed to my other books that you know it might take you eight, 10 hours to get through. So it's a very short, digestible read. There are only 10 stories in it. There's only 10 types of stories that I talk about. But each of the chapters has an example of that type of story, why that type of story is important. But then importantly, some tips on how you can find and craft your own story like that. So in chapter 10, like we just talked about the recruiting story, those questions I just mentioned to you are some of the questions at the end of the chapter that will help you find a great recruiting story for yourself. So the questions in the other nine chapters, of course, are different, but they're questions designed to help you find a great founding story, vision story, you know, sales story, marketing story, whatever. And then in the last chapter of the book are some tips in how to craft those stories. So now that you've, you know, that here are the 10 stories you need to go find. Each of the chapters has tips for how to find examples of those stories for you and your company. Then the last chapter is just some short tips on how do you craft those stories once you found them. So for example, and the workbook that you mentioned does it even better because it, it lays all of it out. I even take some content from my previous books and put it into the workbook that you're not going to find in the main book. For example, what are the eight questions that your story needs to answer, right? That is the structure of a well-told business story, all right? And I just don't have time to go into a lot of that detail in the, in the main book, but the workbook will help you with that kind of stuff. But there are some tips like that at the end. What's the structure? How do you get the right emotional 
engagement in your stories? Is there a way to create a surprise ending? So it's a, a short way for you to get started. You're going to want to learn more, I think, but that's what you know my training courses and some of my other books will do for you. But if you had a one hour to start your journey in storytelling, that's what this book is designed to do. It would be time well spent, I can tell you, as you can clearly hear. That's my copy of uh, The 10 <laughs> Stories Great Leaders Tell. Paul, could you uh, tell us about StoryMaker, your site, other ways that people could connect with you and learn from you with this latest book and your body of work? Yeah. So the easiest thing to do is to go to my website, which is leadwithastory.com. It's just the name of my first book. And I, I never got more creative with the website name after that. But yeah, go to leadwithastory.com and you'll find, well, first of all, links there to all these books. And so you can find the one that's right for you. But I've also got some videos. Uh, there's even some online links to online training, some of which is free, some of which is pretty cheap. I think a lot of the LinkedIn learning courses that I do, I think it's like $30 a month or something. You can watch every training video that they've ever made, which is like the best deal on corporate training I think I've ever heard of. But there's also some background on the private you know, lessons that I give to executives and leadership teams and the workshops that I teach on, on how to do this yourself. But because finding a few stories and being able to tell them is a good start, but if you really want a hands-on experience where I take you in a full day through, here are the stories you need and you brainstorm them and we work on them together. And by the end of the day, you've got a handful of really good courses. Those training courses are outlined there as well. Paul, very clear, very illuminating and very engaging. Really appreciate this. Would expect nothing less from an expert in storytelling and someone who not only knows how to do this stuff, but has applied it in lots of different kinds of leadership situations and for different organizations. Really appreciate you being here on the podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. I am very pleased that you've joined the podcast, whether you're a returning message manager, or maybe this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum, and that's because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds, tap subscribe, and offer your five-star rating and review that helps the robots figure out how to let other professionals know about this podcast so they can benefit as well. There's another free business messaging resource available to you, one you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week, a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up at the website, jimcarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. And while you're there, you probably know of a professional association or a company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow the business. You're probably part of more than one yourself. Well, on my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals, the hardworking and often stressed out colleagues who need to find speakers and other ideas for making in-person events memorable and valuable. I list several keynote and session topics. They're all based upon practical learnings from my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. All of my topics are tailored to the themes of your meeting and the needs of your participants. My programs are designed to not only be engaging in the moment, but also to provide the basis for business growth for months and sometimes even years afterward. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. Let's talk. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. 
You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.